It's at the point of witness that determines whether or not you're persecuted or not persecuted. And if you keep Jesus to yourself, uh, you have a good chance of never suffering for your faith. Satan has two desires, keep you from Jesus. And secondly, if he can't keep you from believing in Christ, having access to him, he wants to shut you up. And I'm on the roll. It's watering time, everybody. It is time for Apollos Watered, a podcast to saturate your faith with the things of God so that you might saturate your world with the good news of Jesus Christ. My name is Travis Michael Fleming, and I am your host. And today on our show, we're having another one of our Deep Conversations. A deep conversation with my friend Nick Ripkin. In fact, this is the second part of a three-part conversation that I had with Nick. And I am so excited to share it with you because Nick's story is phenomenal. It's convicting. It's jarring. For those who are easily upset over hearing about the terror and tragedy of others, this may not be the episode for you. I know that some people out there are empathizers, and when they hear about people suffering, they take that upon themselves. So I just want to put that warning out there ahead of time. And I do invite you to go back and listen to the first part of our conversation because it sets the tone for everything else. But here we are talking about the witness of the church and the necessity of having a good witness in the church today? And how do we really develop that? And what can we learn from our brothers and sisters in persecution? And what do persecuted Christians think about the freedoms that we have in our country today? These are just some of the questions that we talk about. We do go once again really deep, and I would encourage you to listen in, invite family and friends to listen in, because it is an amazing conversation where we really do draw lessons of inspiration from our brothers and sisters who are under persecution around the world. But before we get to the conversation or my conversation with Nick, I want to let you know that today's episode is brought to you in part by our friends at the New Living Translation, because we both believe together that understanding the Bible changes everything. With that in mind, happy listening. Mm. So that's a challenging word to hear. Actually, this, this entire conversation is, is I think challenging to many of our listeners, even though, as you said, and as uh, you were referencing, talking about Dimitri, you've talked also about some of the other Russian believers you encountered and in interviewing them, God revealed some other things to you about suffering. Actually, the whole thing. You you go through the the journey of meeting Russians and and talking to people in Islamic countries and uh, China, and you mentioned each one providing some different characteristic as you were having this idea of suffering and persecution revealed within the plan of God. What did you learn when you first went and saw and interacted with these Russian believers that had been so persecuted under communism? I was incredulous. Uh, I remember sitting with some pastors in Russia and, and, and I got upset at them. And I, I said to them uh, inappropriately and too loudly, why haven't you written this stuff down? 
why haven't you made books and movies out of this and rival Hollywood? And this very gentle, white-haired old pastor, been in prison 10 years, quietly at a break, took me to a window in the house and said, Nick, I hear you have three sons. And I said, yes. He said, how often did you take them to the eastern side of the house? And said, look, boys, the sun's coming up in the east. I said, I would never do that. He said, why? I said, well, it always comes up in the east. I'd be stupid, foolish to make that kind of statement. And he said, well, that's why we don't talk about persecution, why we don't make movies and write books. It happened to our great-grandparents and our grandparents and our parents. We're preparing our kids to suffer. Uh, persecution is like the sun coming up in the east. And as I went to the Ukraine and sat with the evangelists, same story. It is is um, you, you Again, you can't have resurrection without crucifixion. And, 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 and really, I don't want one to be seen. You don't want to do as I saw some groups do. I've, I've seen groups define faith by persecution to such an extent that when their persecutors went away, like they did for a period in, the, in Russia and the Soviet Union, they can't prove who the real Christians are because nobody's suffering. And, and to get them to say, well, this is a season of life that God is giving you where you have a freedom to really broadly solve the gospel and go deeper uh, until the things come crashing in again. We'll take advantage of those days. That's what persecuted Christians see about America, that by their stripes, by their blood, they are holding Satan hostage in his own backyard to buy you and I a period of freedom in America, in the West, to share Jesus, mostly free of persecution and suffering. And they say to us, don't you dare give up in freedom what we never give up in persecution. And that is our witness to the life and death of resurrection of Jesus Christ. You see, we think, well, we don't have persecution because we have a right form of government. And, and yet, the, the uh, almost all significant church growth in the world is in persecution. Mm -hmm. It's not in the West. Matter of fact, almost every denomination in the West is declining by three to 7% a year. Mm -hmm. and, and so again, you don't pray for persecution. You pray for faithfulness to witness. The persecution is going to come, but that is Satan's response to the love in, that Jesus brings and to a, dis, a, a hatred that he doesn't want to give up his own territory. Hmm. And Satan will, you watch him in Somalia, killing these babies and raping these women. And hmm. you watch all the starvation going on in Afghanistan. Satan will, Satan will sacrifice any part of his body to protect his investment, if you will, his territory. Whereas Jesus will give all of his body and be crucified so that you and I have a chance of eternal life. Wow. That's the, that's good news. That's really good news. It is good news. And you, you draw this out with Russians and then in the Chinese, especially you saw a difference between their sufferings. Uh, you mentioned their attitude and their disposition. Can you describe briefly what that was and the approach that that the Chinese had that was different than the Russians? Well, there were a number of things, but one of the things that the Russians did 
the communists there were very smart. And they swallowed the church piece by piece by piece over 70 years. That when communism failed, the church had been swallowed up to his chin and didn't even know it. And, and they just did this piecemeal. Uh, and there's just, just ways they did this over decades at a time. And all these pastors and religious leaders had to report to a communist handler once a week. And they just slowly got you used to telling them what's going on in the church. And, and, uh, and yet in China, by the time 48, 49 was over, uh, every believer there knew that communism, the communists were not going to be happy until every church was destroyed and every believer dead. Same goal in Russia, but because they were so devious and, and, and they, they let you keep your churches and they let you keep your seminaries and they let you keep your houses and properties for your pastor. And then what they did, they held you hostage to them. You see, you don't allow evil to hold you hostage to God's blessings. And if you need to walk away from a building, walk away from it. You need to walk away from a seminary established, walk away from it. And, and yet the Chinese and uh, the communists in China uh, ripped them out of the very fabric of society within a uh, less than 24-month period that they, the Chinese believers knew, well, they're going to kill us. They're going to kill every one of us. So we might as well go out loving, go out living, and go out witnessing. And, and so uh, they, they knew there was no compromise. And yet in the Soviet Union, uh, uh, some of the places in the satellite countries, mm -hmm. when the records were, when communism fell so quickly, brother, that the church got all those records of, of what pastors and denominational workers told the bad guys. And some of those places, 90% of the clergy denominational leaders lost their position in their church and their denomination because of what they had told on their church members to the bad guys. Mm. Can you imagine? They take you, Travis, you've got kids, yeah. you've got a wife yeah. and they, and you're sitting in that chair across from your communist handler. And they say, no, you know, Travis, I like you. I really don't want anything bad to happen to you, but you know, Travis, you know, your wife walks through these back streets coming from the market. You, you might, Travis, you might want to tell her she needs to stay where the light is because we're trying to stop it, but we can't. But assets being thrown in the face of some of the pastor's wives. Oh, I'd hate, Travis, to see something happen to your wife. So you might want to keep her at home. And they do that with your, and what they'll do, they take your kids they put them in the middle of a gym and the whole school's there and they ridicule your children, nine, 10, 11 years of age. Uh, they, uh, they, they, they put your children in the gymnasium and in front of all of their friends, they ridicule the children of the pastors and the leaders. They make your kids stay after school, stand at attention before the principal's desk administrators, teachers are there and they make fun of your kids because their parents are Christians and your nine, seven, eight-year-old kids come home and say, why can't we be like other kids? Why can't you get a real job? Why, why, why do you, do you know what they're doing to me there? But as that plays out, if their parents love their enemies and their parents do good to those who hate them and despitefully use them and spit upon them, about 12, 13, 14 years of age, their kids will look at the lives of their parents and the lives of the persecutors 
and they choose Jesus. Hmm. See what the communists know, what the persecutors know, if they can separate you, yours and my kids, our kids from our faith in one generation, Christianity's dead. And what has not happened in persecution is happening in America, that our kids are walking away from church at 17, 18 years of age, and certainly by their first year in college, without a shot being fired, without anybody being tortured or anybody going to prison, we're losing that whole generation. How are we going to start over? You mentioned this, that suffering really is the key to helping not just purify, but authenticate the faith. I don't know if you've read Christian Smith's book, uh, Souls in Transition. He is a Notre Dame researcher, and they did the largest study on religion of American youth, although it was under the guise of something else, because if they said religion, the answers would be skewed. Right. And they wanted to know why these kids that did stay in the faith, why? And he really isolated it, if I remember correctly, down to three factors. He said, number one, the parents modeled what they taught. Number two, there was another adult outside of the home that verified or supported what the parents said. And he goes, number three, they suffered for their faith. Wow. And that seems to fly in the face of what has been largely taught in America. Um. I, I was speaking to uh, a, a man who runs uh, a college ministry at the University of Illinois in uh, Urbana-Champaign, and he was talking about the younger people that are coming in today, and he said, about 2014, we noticed a shift. And I said, what did you mean? He said, the kids coming in now lack grit. They lack a stick They don't know how to communicate very well with people. Part of that's an online world in which they've been raised. He said, but he goes, they, they, they lack a, a steadfastness. And I said, well, what do you mean? He responded and said, have you heard of helicopter parents? And I said, yes. The, the parent that's always over the shoulder looking at the child. And he goes, have you heard of a snowplow parent? Huh. And I thought, no, what, what's that? And he said, it's the parent that clears away any opposition that the child has received so that they never have to suffer. But it seems that suffering is one of, one of the mechanisms that God uses to not only authenticate the faith within ourselves, but to show the reality of who Christ is in his kingdom to those who are outside of his kingdom. After all that you have learned, and I know we are only scratching the surface. Reading through the book, you visited how many different countries? 72? Yes. 72 countries. You met with believers. How many interviews did you conduct, roughly? Uh, I've documented 600, but probably 700. 700 believers that are in massive persecution. And how, how long were these interviews? These weren't just 20-minute no. interviews. No, we don't just say, how'd you come to Jesus there? A, a, a adequate one is four hours. You want to hear from their first memories. And say, for instance, with a Muslim, when did you, as they're telling your life story, you want to know who mom and dad are. You want to know about their education. You want to know conservative, what, you know, secular. You just want to listen. Just want to listen. 
people love to tell their life story, just not ask questions, just listen like you do so well. And let me just rant and rave. And, and, uh, and, and, and then what you're, you're listening for is uh, you, when you first heard of the Bible, what, what were you told? First heard the name Jesus, what did you feel? What were you told? And you're looking for all those things that led up to their conversion and uh, who baptized them. And look, for instance, if I have a column of, uh, where Westerners are involved and the more that Westerners are involved inside of persecution without language and culture, especially the deeper the persecution is because of the outsider, not because of who Jesus is. And so we're looking for those correlations. What led up to your suffering? Did you learn from it? Did the church learn from it? What did your family say? Was there growth? Did things go back? When Judas shows up? You see, there's a the whole thing. Every time when, 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 when a church, the body of Christ, usually in homes, when there's a critical mass of believers for the first time emerging in a place, Judas always shows up from the inside. Judas is one of the clearest examples that God is up to something. And how you deal with Judas will determine if you focus on Judas and the crucifixion, you'll fall back in 10 to 20 years. You'll have, it'll take you 10 to 20 years to get back where you are today. If you focus in all that horrible betrayal on Jesus and the resurrection, you're just, Acts 2 is around the corner. Pentecost is ahead of you. So what you do with Judas is a tipping point, but almost no one in the Western church knows about Judas because Judas shows up when we are a threat to Satan. When we're an absolute threat to Satan, those Bible stories come into play. And so all of these things that you're saying is very, very uh, helpful to me. Now, no sane person play, prays for persecution. Right. What, what, what you're praying for is to be faithful in season and out of season, knowing that persecution is going to be a byproduct of that. And, and yet what my culture is doing is holding up things like an abortion and homosexuality which I believe we must have a very strong biblical stance on that. But are we willing? Here, here's where I think we're coming short in the church. We do a good job of giving women options rather than killing their babies. Homosexuality, I don't know what it does to us, but we stand at a distance and throw rocks. But, but we're asking governments to pass laws to protect church from our social issues that we feel strongly about and where when believers in persecution why they are persecuted is not because they don't have social stance they do but the reason they're persecuted is that they've come to christ and they're bold in their witness to their family their neighbors their friends at work they know how to share christ with others and 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 yet uh islam has the same social stance on abortion and homosexuality as Christianity does. Now, am I going to have a strong stance on those two social issues? Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. But the difference between me and an Islamic stance is I am going to be willing to give my life for those who practice what I feel 
is non-Christ-like social practices. And, and I think that's what, that's what makes us different. And, and so when I, if I want to identify with my brothers and sisters in chains, this is the hardest thing I ever say, Travis, right now. If I want to identify with my brothers and sisters in chains, of course I pray for them as they pray for us. But I am, they're, they're in chains because they're coming to Jesus and they're sharing uh, Christ appropriately throughout the strata of society. So the way that I identify with my brothers and sisters in chains is by giving my life to Jesus and sharing Christ with others. But when I, the opposite is true. When I keep Jesus to myself and I deny my family member, my friend, that mean person at work, uh, access to eternal life, not only am I failing to identify with my brothers and sisters in chains, I'm identifying with the ones that chained them. By keeping or giving my witness, I choose to identify with the persecuted are the persecutors. Oh, my goodness. Oh, my goodness. When, when I realized what believers in persecution were trying to teach me, I couldn't breathe. I couldn't breathe because I, they had already modeled for me. I already knew evil. Uh, Satan's two biggest objectives is to keep people from having access to Jesus. And he's doing a mighty good job of that globally. And secondly, you know what, brother? You can come to Christ in a Saudi Arabia and North Korea, theoretically. And if you keep Jesus to yourself, you have a good chance of dying at old age in your bed. It's at the point, not the point of government. It's at the point of witness that determines whether or not you're persecuted or not persecuted. It's at the point of witness. And if you keep Jesus to yourself, uh, you have a good chance of never suffering for your faith. Satan has two desires, keep you from Jesus. And secondly, if he can't keep you from believing in Christ, having access to him, he wants to shut you up and make you keep Jesus to yourself. And, and what believers in persecution have refused is to shut up. And they're not ugly about it. Uh, they, 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 they go and, and give medicine to their torturer to go and pray over that person that beat them when they're at the end of their life. Uh, uh, I've interviewed, I can't tell you, you know, it's not going to be in the hundreds, it'll be in the scores of former security policemen who came to Christ by torturing our brothers and sisters and being loved in return. And you know what? They learned that from Jesus. They learned that from Stephen. That's why you don't want to put the Bible in past tense. But the Bible in present active tense is a dangerous, dangerous thing because it'll send your kids to the end of the world. It'll call out your mom and dad and, and they won't get to see their, their grandkids uh, uh, grow up because they're somewhere out just serving the Lord. And, and uh, it, it's something maybe for another time together. But pagans bless their children more often to go to the mission field than Christians do. Ouch. That, that one hurts. Because okay. pagans, pagans will make up a reason for our going. 
I came home when all that stuff in Somalia wasn't working and looking for help. And I came here to Kentucky to see my dad. I walked into the only restroom, restroom, the only restaurant in, <laughs> in my little town. And, uh, and, uh, and all these old men patting you on the back and say, way to go, boy. We knew you had it in you. And that never happened to me. My older brother was that kind of person. And they put me back where the Rotary Club only meets and gave me a real plate and real silverware. And, <laughs> and everybody is. And I said, Dad, what's going on? And Dad said, I told him what you did. I said, Dad, what'd you tell them? He said, I told him how you brought those 32,000 troops into Somalia to save those people. And I said, Dad, I didn't do any such thing. He said, were you there first? I said, yep. He said, did you write about it and give interviews? I said, yes, sir. He said, so you shamed America, shamed other countries, and they had to do something about it. And I thought, Lordy. And then after <laughs> that talk went down, I'm a mile away. And we came home after that for a short visit. I said, Dad, what are you going to tell your friends now? He said, I've already told them. I said, oh, no. I said, Dad, what did you tell them? He said, I told them they didn't listen to you and they had to leave. <laughs> you see what non-believers will do? Yeah. My dad came to Christ after our son died. But they will make up a reason of why their kids are out there. Church people know we only go for one person. One reason. Uh. Jesus. And if Jesus is not worth their lives and the lives of their kids and their grandkids, they're not going to bless them to go. Wow. Nick, you bring up such a challenge to the Western Christian mind that seems to be the everyday through the New Testament. Yes. And through our experience of our brothers in the majority world cultures. Right. In our culture today, it's my contention, and I say the West, the American church, that we don't suffer from a hard persecution as much as what I would call a soft persecution. And what I mean by that is it's not, I mean, we, we don't have to, in many ways, suffer. We don't suffer like those do in other cultures. We suffer at thought of litigation, reputation, that kind of thing. But the reality, I think, is, is we're so addicted to our creaturely comforts and we're so distracted by our busyness, by Netflix, by scrolling through YouTube on our phones, that we're too, we're too distracted to even think on these issues. They seem so far removed from our everyday experience. How does the church in the West recover this sense of urgency and there, there is a soft persecution, what I like to call a pleasureful forgetting. And in the majority world, there's a hard persecution, which is a painful remembering. How can we combat that soft persecution here in the West? Let's is talk it? about us guys. Okay. On the mission field, whether you're charismatics, Baptists, whether you're with Frontiers, YWAM, OM, whatever groups out there, we have seven single women for every one single man. It's like men in our churches, brother, are praying, God, here am I. Send my sister. <laughs> and if you go to the hard places, like when we got kicked out of Yemen, we had 21 single women and one guy. 
and 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 the harder the place, the more women we have, the uh, less men. Now, so the question you and I need to to talk about is over time is what is it in a in Christian church culture that's emasculating men? One of them obvious mm. to me is our culture just does the pastor teacher thing, mm. and and on young men that's what they have if they are watching men lead that's the role they see cleaned up sheep among sheep nothing wrong with that but jesus is quoted some are given the role of apostle church planner evangelist pastor teacher we've edited those first two or three out we don't have that model and so uh, that's why uh, a lot of workers like ourselves uh, i avoid a lot of times the word missionary but uh, they, they go over and they evangelize until they can see enough people to, to have baptized and then they gather them so they can pastor them. But a pastor is always a local person, not a foreigner. Uh, the, 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 the foreigner, we're bait for Jesus. You know, we let local people fish with us and it often doesn't turn out well for the bait. But we're we're like Paul. We're going from place to place to place. We do it in the language. Yeah. We do it in the culture. But this thing about where we're having so many women show up, and 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 the, and the men are not showing up. The pastor teacher is just one piece of that. A bigger piece that we could talk about a long time. And I think you could help me. Is 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 why men are not coming? Is because. My home culture lies to us. Now think of Christian men around the world. Mm-hmm. Picture fathers, just not in persecution. They're, they're in rural Ethiopia. They're in southern Sudan. They're in the Congo. They're in South America. They're up the Amazon bases. Uh, they're making, if they have a job, one to two dollars a day. So they're a barter economy. They don't have disposable income. Right. And 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 yet. My culture tells me, Ripken, if you're going to be a man of God, it is your responsibility to see that your wife and children, married appropriately, if that's true, have the best medical care, cleanest water, the best education, the best shelter, and above all else, you are responsible for their security. What we've just said, and that's by me saying that, We've just said to 90% of the Christian fathers of the world, you have no chance whatsoever of being a good father, a good husband. Because you cannot protect your your boys three and under from Herod's killers. If if Herod's soldiers want your wives and daughters, they're going to take them. You're lucky to send one child to school and that will never be your daughter. In rural parts of Islam, uh, girls are married at 14. Education is the number one factor determining what age they married. And the guy's usually 30 years of age. And I can go on and on and, and on. But when I talk to guys, when their wives are willing to go to the Somalias and the Afghanistans, the mountains and the deserts of this world, and their husbands want to go, and I can name some places, and those places need Jesus, but they're just the more dressed up western oriented places uh it's just because of this lie they believe that that, but see for me i I was raised travis and i hear my grandfather and father say often 
I'd rather be a poor man and go to heaven than a rich man and go to hell. I thought that was in the Bible. And so when I got to Africa, that was my biggest adjustment. I'm from a very poor family in Kentucky. And so I get there, we have access to medical care, have to drive there. We have access, I, I, I dug a water well. So we had clean water. None of the villages had that, unless they come to our place. Uh, we have access to, to regular food, wasn't that varied. Uh, we had fair security. We had nice housing. And, 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 but by having access to more than survivability put me in the top 5% of the richest people in Africa. Top 5%. So now I'm the rich guy going to hell mm. in my mind. And I've had guys tell me, and I am not, I am not picking a Second Amendment fight. I'm not going to do that. Mm. But I've had man, man after man, father after father, husband after father, pump me in the chest with their finger and said, I will not go to these places because they will not take, allow me to take my guns and I cannot protect my family. And I asked them, so what's your job? Food, water, shelter, education, medicine, security. So I asked them, what is it that you let God do? And they're dumbfounded. And the wives will go over and get in their laps and put their arms around their husbands and weep and say, honey, that's what I've been trying to say to you for years. I have a God. I need a husband. They're not the same person. And so what our culture tells us Christian men, what it means to be a godly parent, that's been one of the most hurtful things that I've had a hard time responding to is by implication over you're going to take your wife with you? No, I'm going to leave her for 35 years. You're taking your kids with you? No, I'm going to let my family raise them and just tell them they don't matter to me when, when they are the best missionaries that we've ever had out there. And, 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 and the whole implication is you're not a good husband, you're not a good father, because you're taking them out of these places, America, where they have all this good stuff. And yet nine out of 10 of our kids that grow up on the mission field finish in the top 90 percentile of however you measure success, emotionally, spiritually, whatever, educationally, uh, they, they finish up in the top strata. Now, 10%, my goodness, they fall hard. And they, can, they, they almost never can adjust back here. So there are those prices to pay. But the question is, We've got to answer is, what does it mean to be a man of God? What's my role and what's God's role? And we fight over this verse about uh, women submit to your husbands and to the Lord. And, and we almost use that to fight over church positions. But you know what the next verse, part of that verse says? Uh, women submit to your husbands as unto the Lord. Husbands, love your wife. As Christ loved the church and gave himself yes. up for her. So and that's the part we don't, we don't remember. And when, well. when Muslim women see, watch me, watch Ruth, defer to her, ask her to tell Bible stories in a gathering and, 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 and attract it to her after 45 years of marriage. Uh, and and they, they, they will say, as we tell these Bible stories, 
if I, I can't believe there's a man on earth willing to give their life. Oh, yes, for his honor, but for the love of his wife. That's incomprehensible. That's what we get to do. That's what my wife and I and our kids get to do. And what a joy that is to let them look in on our marriage and our parenting. And, and if there's anything that we've sacrificed, man, a hundredfold's been given back to us. Let's go back for a moment. You were talking about, I mean, we've been talking about sacrificing not only ourselves, but bringing our family along because Christ calls us. Yes, he calls us as individuals, but yet if we're part of a family, it, the, the children are going to inevitably experience some type of sacrifice and blessing. Yes, yes. Through that. You tell a story in the book. I, I can't remember if it was Russia or China. It's the man that you had to interview and he made it that he, he laid out the conditions of the interview and he's hiding behind a bush. Right. In the corner of a room. Was that in China or Russia? It's a uh, it's a Islamic setting. Oh, it's Islamic. Okay, Central Asia setting. Central Asia. Near, Central Asia. Here, where all the nonsense is taking place right now. And can you just tell that story very quickly? Because I found myself drawn in. This is a very difficult man, a man that I don't think many of us could ever really identify with until it gets to the challenge that you laid out. But tell that story briefly. Well, when the last uh, country invaded his country, he was a freedom fighter. And he said with his own hands, he'd killed over 100 people. Some of them, he, he, he led a, a group of, of Islamic freedom fighters, and, and he talked in a dead voice um, of skinning people alive. And um, it, let me back up a little bit. I had a number of Westerners said, this is a guy you need to talk to, but nobody knew where he was. Nobody knew his name. And finally, somehow word filtered to him. And he sent me word and he said, fly to this city. And when you get to this city, call this number. I did that. And I called that number, said, fly to this town, this city. So I flew to a smaller city. I got there, called a number, fly to this city. I flew to that city. Got there, called a number, said, get a taxi, go to this part of the city. Got out of the taxi. They said, look to your right, go to this building, walk up to the seventh floor, walk in, open the door, stand under the light bulb, don't move. That's where I stood for six hours talking to this guy. With a bright light bulb at my forehead, he's behind a potted plant. I can hear his voice clearly. I can see his shadow. That's all I can see. And this guy tells me about the people he killed and, and how he began to dream of the blood on his hands that of the people he'd killed and throats he'd cut and, and uh, skinned alive and how in successive nights over weeks that blood drew a grew and dripping off his elbows. And he said, I knew I was going hopelessly insane when I started seeing the blood in the day and no matter washing or scrubbing, I couldn't get the blood off. And he said, I was just about to take my life. And I dreamed and there was a man clothed in white in my language. He said, I'm Jesus Messiah. He said, uh, uh, uh he said, it's, had scars in his head, his hands, and his feet, and his side. Not an unusual dream for Muslim staff. But said, if you find me, I'll take the blood off. This guy walked to three countries looking for you and looking for me because we're not looking for him. And he put pieces of the story together. And there's one day he found the Jesus film in his language and gave his life to Christ. And Christ took the blood 
on himself as he does. This man immediately became an evangelist of the people. And see, that's the thing. See, if you're where Christ is not known, you're automatically an evangelist church planner. There's nothing to pastor. There's nothing to pastor. And, and so we, we don't even know how to start in environments like that, but let's just leave that for a moment. And so he's telling me this story for six hours behind this light bulb. And, and uh, it was life-changing. I call him the toughest man I've ever met. He was. And they, after he became a Christian, they caught him a few times. They beat him. They broke his bones. And, uh, there, there was a time when uh, his old squad or whatever you want to call him, caught up with him. And, uh, and they began to beat him with rifle butts. And they broke his elbows and some of his bones in his feet. And there was a believer among those 15, I think about 15 men that only God knew about and said to the others, hey, we're being foolish. If we kill our old commander quickly, we can't find out who he's contacting on both sides of the border. Let me take him to the next town. I'll get him patched up. When you come back through from your patrol, then you can torture him more wisely, slowly, we can get the names out of him. So that believer put that believer on the animal, I think a donkey or something, took him next city, patched him up and smuggled him out of the border. And so years later, I meet him under his conditions. And so he's talked and, and he's done. And my life is, I'm just all these wheels are turning and I'm thinking, I'm listening to the apostle Paul walking in the Old Testament. But that's why the apostle Paul did in the New Testament. He was walking in the Old Testament is on his stripes and, and on the cross that Jesus carried at the New Testament and emerged from the Old Testament in their lifetimes. And I just I just don't really put all those pieces together and until I'm experiencing it. But I did say to him after six hours, you know, my life's changed. I don't know. I feel so lost. Do I even know Jesus when I look into the mirror of your faith? I uh, felt that so many times. And uh, and I said, but, you know, you told me that you've got a wife and and kids. And and yet after the next six hours, you never mentioned them again. How do they figure into your ministry? How do they help you? How, how, how do you do this together? Because I know when when the men do this by themselves, the harvest is going to be 90 percent men and 10 percent women and families. And it's not going to go anywhere. It's not. And, and so it's families that reach families. The smallest unit that can survive and thrive in persecution is when a family comes to Christ. One by one by one, they come to Christ. Satan picks them off one by one by one. Okay. I've got all these little satellites going around us. And sorry for that. But I said, but you haven't mentioned them in six hours. How do they figure in your ministry? And he leaped from behind that potted plant to where I'm standing and grabbed me by the shoulders and began to shake me. And I about, can I say this? I about wet my pants again. <laughs> and uh, they don't teach you that in seminary. That when fear comes upon you, you pray and you, yes. And and uh, yeah. and I was, and he's shaking me and I'm thinking, oh, he killed a hundred people. Now I brought that back out in him. And, and he began to shake me and yell and my face spitting on me. How can God ask it? How can God ask it? I said, well, if you stop shaking me, I'll try to help you find the answer that 
I said, how can God ask what? And he said, I've given him everything. And he had. And my body's been broken. I've been almost frozen to death. Uh, I've gone without water for days at a time. And what I go to bed living in fear of is that God will ask of my wife and children what he's asked of me. How can he ask it? I have scars on my heart that were very raw because our son had not been dead very long. And I chose for one of the first times to tell him that story and tell it in a way that I'm not going to tell on the radio. And, um, and I told him that, and I told him what it was like to watch four of my brothers be killed in one day and not to be able to bury their bodies. And just to say, I've not been through what you've been through, but, but I, I, just, I just ask him, is Jesus worth your life? I said, this is what I have to ask of my family. Is Jesus worth your life, the life of your wife, and the life of your children? Is Jesus worth it? And we just made a music video with Erskine on a song that he and Matt Papa and others helped us write some years ago. It's a marvelous, somebody might want to go on YouTube and look at Erskine, E-R-S-K-I-N, and is he worth it? It's a powerful, powerful, it's from the clips from the film. The toughest man I ever met is featured in that music video. And, and yet, he came out and, and I asked him that question and he's holding me and he's weeping and he's weeping, just broken. And he wiped those tears away almost in anger. You could see, you know, he's not used to crying. And he said, uh, I'm going home. And I've gone home. I'm going to get my wife. I'm going to get my kids. And we're going to do this stuff together because I have no right. He said, I have no right to cheat my wife and kids out of the joy for suffering for Jesus. And I walked out of there broken, crying, saying, Lord, what have I done? What have I done to this family? And the Holy Spirit said, you've done what I told you to do. You talked about the nature of the kingdom of God. And you put in perspective that a man had a hundred sheep, cattle, camels, goats, and he goes out and he finds that one's missing. And see, we tell us we tell ourselves the story. We don't tell us our story, the story biblically. It says, does he not leave them in the open country? See, in our brains, he leaves them in a barn or a corral or a crawl or something. He doesn't. He leaves them in an open country. And does he not go take that one beast and carry them home and have a a feast, and we say to churches, do, do you understand Jesus is saying that we, the 99, have eternal life? We have it. And it is, there is no true tragedy to get to go home to Jesus early. But that for the sake of one Al-Qaeda, one Taliban family, one ISIS unit of, of a family coming to Jesus, God says 99 church members are disposable income because I've already washed you with the blood of the lamb and you have eternal life and nothing they can do that can keep you from having an eternity together. Our stuff in the West 
has become our eternity. It has. And so I'll never forget his response. I can't get in touch with him. He, he's such a, uh, I won't really say a moving target. He is a target and he is moving. But see, a lot of these folks, it took miracles for me to find them, to walk alongside of them. And, and there was no cell phones and, and really trying to keep up with them the way uh, technology is today would put their lives in further risk. Uh, but I, I hear pieces of things coming out of there at times. At times, I hear that, like with Dimitri, that his son now is a uh, 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 chaplain. You know, chaplain of the prison. Other times, uh, uh, these people disappear, and I only assume that they've allowed me going home to Jesus. And this is, you see, you and I are not doing a talk show. We're talking about the nature of eternity, the nature of being created in the image of God. And if Jesus is who he says he is, then he's worth it. And if he's not, then we should stay home and keep Jesus to ourselves. There were so many things said in that conversation that you could just draw that out and meditate on that for a week or two weeks or even a month. I mean, something just that God has done through their experience that is so challenging to us in the church today, and not just in the West, but all over the world. And I appreciated Nick's emphasis on the church having freedom where we're at today, not to be, to make us guilty, but to understand that we have a freedom. We've been given a gift. We must exercise that gift. There are so many quotes that I wrote down as I went back and through this interview that it's at the point of witness that determines whether you are persecuted or not persecuted. That's one that I really drew out, and it's been a challenge to me. Not that we go out looking for persecution, but if we are willing to witness, to share with people what Christ has done in our lives, to share with people who Christ is, to share with people about Jesus as our king. And I also love the fact that he he didn't put it on the government. He said this, it is not at the point of government, but at the point of witness that determines whether you are persecuted or not persecuted. If you keep Jesus to yourself, there's a good chance you will never suffer for your faith. I think that's a challenge to each one of us. If his statistics are right, he said that almost 90% of those who are in the church in the West never witness to another person, then we do need to be ashamed of ourselves. If we have this freedom, who's to say that we're going to keep it if we don't exercise and use it for the propagation of the good news of Jesus Christ? It's a challenge to me, and I hope it is a challenge to you, and that you don't let it stay there. Your water bottle for the week is this, witness. Witness to someone that you know, someone in your family, someone in your household, and tell them about who Jesus is and what he means to you and how he's changed your life. In fact, I want to pray for us all right now that God might be able to help us so that we might be able to do that. Heavenly Father, I thank you for Nick and Ruth Ripken. I thank you for what you've done in their lives. And Lord, how you've used them to 
challenge and inspire so many. And Lord, for those who are living under the constant shadow of persecution, I pray, Lord, that you strengthen them. And Lord, that we might truly take a hold of the freedoms that we have. For those of us in the West or in countries where there is freedom, may we be bold in our witness and testimony about who you are and what you desire for the world. Give us encouragement. Give us strength. Give us insight. Forgive us when we fail to take advantage of that. But Lord, use us for the glory of your name. We pray this in Jesus' name. I do want to encourage you. This is not a hopeless thing. This is meant for our inspiration, that we might take these these truths that we have held and repent of any lack of witness or lack of character or lack of vitality in our faith and turn back to our first love and begin to testify once again to who Jesus is. I know for many of us, we've had our moments where we've blown it, where we've failed, But we don't need to stay in that failure. That's the most wonderful thing about our God. He gives forgiveness. He grants U-turns. And he enables us to get back on track with him. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful thing? I hope and pray that it is for you just as much as it is for me. And I want to let you know that today's episode has been brought to you in part by Kathy Brothers of Keller Williams Innovate and Derek Eastman Insurance Agency. And as we talked about before, we have our new sponsor, the NLT. And I want to let you know because I want to put a Bible in your hand. I know that you could use a really good NLT Bible, but if you go to Tyndale.com, use the promo code NLT Bibles, NLT Bibles in all cap, and that will give you 15% off of anything at Tyndale.com. And we would love for you to have an NLT Bible in your home. So don't wait, do it today. And if this episode has helped you, helped you grow in your relationship with Jesus, then would you do us a favor? You can help other people grow by passing it on. We are a brand new ministry and we need your partnership. We need you to be our hands and our feet, our voices, advocating for us, praying for us. So please, Consider supporting this ministry. First of all, you can do that by sharing this episode with other people or subscribing to it and leaving a review so other people realize how amazing this podcast is. And if you want to help us financially, and I think you might, then you need to go to apolloswater.org, hit that support us box in the upper right-hand corner and pick the best level for you. You will be glad that you did and your mother will be grateful that you did as well. With that in mind, I want to thank our Apollos Water team, Kevin, Rebecca, Eliana, Donovan, Chris, Chris, and Melissa. Water your faith, water your world. This is Travis Michael Fleming signing off from Apollos Water. Stay watered, everybody. And